0: By the ninth hour, say the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it was finished, consummatum est, as the man himself said. The passion was complete. The earth shook as Jesus gave up the ghost. But what you won't find in the Gospels is how this earthquake was so strong that Calvary was split into two. In the aftermath of Christ's death, five archangels bore up half of the cracked hill, flew it halfway across the world, and laid it atop Mount Banahaw. Another variant to this story goes like this. After the crucifixion, after his son had given up his life, God was ultimately disappointed that the entire world remained amiss. So he transported the entire Holy Land to another suitable location, Mount Banahaw. It would be here, in this mystical mountain studded with holy sites, that Jesus Christ would make his big return. It would be here that the faithful would await his second coming. Meanwhile, other legends also call Mount Banahaw the New Sinai, where a new covenant would be struck, or the new Ararat, where the last great ark would land during the final deluge of the world. Rising 2,100 meters above sea level, Mount Banahaw dominates the landscape of Calabarzon. Like many peaks in our archipelago, it's a volcano, but it hasn't erupted in a while. Instead of fire and smoke, it is water that issues from its slopes in the form of springs, streams, and waterfalls. Residents have long revered the mountain as a holy place, the Santong Lugar, the Santa Tierra, the New Jerusalem. Since at least the late 1800s, prophets and pilgrims have found enlightenment and ecstasy in this holy mountain. Up to now, Hundreds of religious sects call it home. Central to their worship are innumerable puestos. Adopted from the Spanish word for place, these are mystical landmarks, the springs, peaks, the rocks, the caves, that are somehow, as one scholar put it, impregnated with sacredness. These shrines surely date back farther than the late 1800s and connect the Christian-influenced cults with a more ancient spiritual tradition. But in 1842, two Americans, one Navy officer and one naturalist, climbed rapidly up the summit of Mount Banahaw. Spirits and sacred sites did not concern them. They were there for the science. Welcome to the Colonial Department. This is the podcast where we take long-lost stories from Philippine colonial history and bring them to life. In this episode, pack your bags and your pith hats as we accompany an American expedition to the Philippines. This is Season 5, Episode 7, Climbing Banahaw in the Name of Science. If sea voyages during Magellan's time were all about planting flags in quote-unquote undiscovered country, voyages in the Age of Enlightenment would sometimes fly under a different kind of manner. On paper at least, they didn't sail for gold, god, and greed. They sailed for the sake of something else entirely. As one historian wrote, unlike expeditions which set off with intent like merchants trade or had military ambitions, they were motivated solely by the joy of knowledge for knowledge's sake. Such sentiments sounded reassuring, noble even. But they mask the fact that those leading the expeditions often had other motives, too. Take the voyage of Captain James Cook, who first plunged deep into the heart of the Pacific Ocean in 1768, with instructions from the British government to track the path of Venus across the night sky. But behind this innocuous attempt at maritime astronomy was another unspoken objective. The British lords had also secretly ordered Cook to find, and claim, the legendary Terra Australis, a mysterious continent that lay to the south. Land ho! Eighty years after the Cook expeditions, America would launch a major scientific endeavor of its own. It was made up of six sailing ships, staffed with 346 men and led by seven scientists, all chomping at the bit to show that their young and scrappy nation too, could join the ranks of the world's illustrious science bros. Officially, it was called the United States South Seas Exploratory Expedition, but the crew gave it a more catchy nickname XX, as in EXEX. The XX was ambitious right from the get go. In front of Congress, one of its proponents laid out its lofty goal. To collect, preserve, and arrange everything valuable in the whole range of natural history, from the minute madrepore to the huge spermaceti, and accurately describe that which cannot be preserved. A madrepore, by the way, is a tropical coral, while spermaceti refers to the colossal sperm whale. The leader of the expedition was Charles Wilkes, the head of the U.S. Navy's Department of Charts and Instruments. But Wilkes was no mild-mannered mapmaker. He was a force of nature himself, brilliant, hot-tempered, dictatorial, a guy who strode the decks and stirred up some the kind of man who dressed up in a captain's uniform even if he was only a lieutenant. Wilkes became so infamous that he'd later become the inspiration for the tyrannical, obsessive Captain Ahab in Herman Melville's book, Moby Dick. With Wilkes on the trip, were seven young guns in the world of science. The crew of the XX called them the Scientifics, and they were an eclectic bunch who were trained variously in botany, zoology, geography, linguistics, and horticulture. The expedition set sail from the east coast of the United States in 1838 and would return four years later with an estimated 40 tons of collections that were even jammed into officers' cabins because space was running out. In their return home the vessels of the xx had been turned into veritable arcs of dead and musty things rummage deep in the inventory of this homecoming hall and you'd possibly chance upon these items one rocks embedded with gold lead and other minerals presented in manila two a meteorological table gifted by a friar three A sample of water, collected from a Los Baños hot spring. 4. Cuttings of trompeta and volcameria flowers, gathered from Mount Makiling. 5. Deft measurements of the Bay of Antique. 6. A stuffed cream-colored pigeon, collected in the Sulu archipelago. 7. A set of curved swords and other assorted weapons, purchased in a market in Holo. In a journey that took them all across the Pacific and up the coasts of the Americas and even to the glimmering flows of the Antarctic, the Philippines was one of the XX final pit stops before heading home. They weren't the first Americans in the archipelago, of course. By the 1840s, there were Boston merchant houses in Manila and Salem gunrunners in Sulu. But scientists, those were a much rarer breed. The ships docked in Manila Bay on the morning of January 13, 1842. In his memoirs, Wilkes wrote of the decaying buildings and the quote-unquote motley and strange population. He took note of the city's history, its industry, its trade, its agriculture, its citizens' love for smoking, and even the rocks lying on the ground, tufa, scoria, and pumice, as he wrote in his book. Limestone and lava rocks spit out from water and fire. Hi, sorry to interrupt your listening. This is Leo, creator of the Colonial Department. This is our first mainline episode of the new year, and I just wanted to say that I really want to get to know you guys, the listeners, even more in 2024. I totally love it if you drop me a line at thecolonialdept at gmail.com. That's depth as in Delta Echo the Colonial Depth at gmail.com. Let me know which episodes you liked which episodes you hated, or if there's anything you want to know more about any of the topics that we discuss on this pod. I'd love to hear from you. Alright, thanks. Let's get back to the scientific expedition to Mount Banahaw. From Manila, some of the scientists set off on a road trip. Taking bangkas from Pasig, they were paddled down to Laguna De Bay. There, the party split. One group would head to Taal Volcano, while a second smaller group, composed of midshipman and geographer Henry Eld and naturalist Charles Pickering, would attempt to summit that mist-covered mountain called Banahaw. The parish priest in a nearby mission tried his best to dissuade Eld and Pickering from their quest. The weather was bad, he said, pointing to the grim black clouds hugging the mountaintop. To go up there would be crazy. But the Americans were stubborn, and the priest, shaking his head, gave them guides, twenty India servants, enough food for three days of climbing, and undersized horses that the scientists described as little rats. The good padre told the Americans that he, too, had climbed the mountain just six months before. What he didn't tell them, though, was that the natives had carried him inside the litter the whole way. In the morning, Pickering and Eld set out with their Indian guides and porters. At the foot of Mount Banahaw, the forest was already so thick that they had to dismount. Rain was coming down non-stop. In their previous hike up the mountain, other climbers had nailed sturdy poles along the path, which the Americans clung to now as they slipped and slid in the mud. In the afternoon, they reached a halfway house. The natives refused to go any further, saying that they had not eaten the entire day and that they would stay there and cook their first meal of the day. After waiting for an hour, Eld and Pickering lost their patience and decided to head up to the summit. Six guides perhaps grudgingly accompanied them. The climb got so steep that they could only keep going by hanging on to shrubs and roots and pulling themselves up the ascent. At half past three, they reached the top of the mountain. It was small, cold and uncomfortable. Eld and Pickering buckled down to do some science they pulled out their barometers, measured the mountain's height above sea level, noted the height of the surrounding trees, and tried to see if the underlying rock was volcanic. But they didn't stay long. Packing up their things, they headed back down to the halfway house, reaching it before dark. The hiking party spent the night there before returning to the mission. When the priest saw them coming back, his jaw dropped. He had expected them to do the climb in three days. These two Americans had done it in 24 hours. The scientific tour continued. Los Panius first to wade in the hot springs and collect a sample of the sulfur-tinged water. Makiling next to marvel at the wildlife. Then, a return to Manila where their leader Wilkes proudly noted in his memoirs, We obtained many new specimens and the officers and naturalists had been constantly and profitably occupied in their various duties. Take note, if you will, of the word Wilkes used, profitably. The crew went back to their ships, and the XX weighed anchor, Prowse, pointed south, surveying Mindoro, Panay, Antique, Zamboanga, before pulling up to Sulu for an audience with the sultan. Wilkes put on his diplomat hat and secured a treaty with the sultanate, guaranteeing trade and protection to all vessels of the United States that would pass its waters. Let it not be said that the XX was only about the science. In Sulu, Wilkes also dabbled in the art of statecraft. From Mindanao, the XX departed the Philippine archipelago and four months later returned home. Their immense collection of artifacts and specimens amassed from all over the world would later become the foundation for the Smithsonian Museum. At present. Mount Banahaw has been periodically closed off to the public over the past decade for environmental rehab and recovery. It would be difficult now for the likes of Henry Eld and Charles Pickering to charge blindly up the mountain, crashing through the mist in a mad dash to the top. To ascend Banahaw is not a sprint, it's a pilgrimage, a pamamuesto of shrines and other sacred sites as you make your way up the mountain, sometimes carrying a heavy rock as part of your penitence. There is the Santong Jacob, a crack in the earth leading to an underground sulfurous spring where, it is said, spirits of the dead sometimes bathe. There is the Yapakni Cristo, a clear pool with an imprint on the bottom that is supposedly the footprint of God himself. There is the Husgado, an eerie, narrow passageway where legend says only the truly repentant can pass. Other holy sites must also be visited where you pray or bathe or reflect before you ascend to your ultimate destination, Calvario or Calvary, with three wooden crosses to commemorate Christ's death, and then near the summit, Cueva ng Jos Ama, the cathedral cave of God the Father. To climb Mount Banahaw is to immerse yourself in an immense reservoir of faith, impossible to measure by any instrument. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Colonial Department. Find us on Instagram and TikTok for more history, behind-the-scenes, and non-fiction book recommendations. If you want to listen to another science-focused episode, check out Season 3, Episode 13, The Friar Who Loved the Flowers and the Trees. Leo Mangubat wrote, narrated, and produced this episode. Anya Ong Reyes read quotations from sources. The song Thank You Next was performed by Ariana Grande and released by Republic Records. References include, one, the memoir of Charles Wilkes, entitled Narrative of the United States Exploring Expedition. Two, scholarly articles about the spirituality of Mount Banahaw by René Somera and Vitaliano Gorospe, both published in the journal Philippine Studies. Three, overviews of the XX from Jane Walsh and Nathaniel Philbrick, archived in the Smithsonian Libraries.